Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Our reading is taken from Isaiah 36, beginning to read at the first verse. This can be found on page 719. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Syria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. When the commander stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to him. The field commander said to them, Tell Hezekiah, This is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have strategy and military strength, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look now, you are depending on Egypt, which pierces a man's hand and wounds him if he leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. And if you say to me, we're depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar? Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. How then can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials? even though we are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen. Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we remain standing, let me pray for us. Father, we have been singing that we would stand on every promise of your word. We pray we would do that now as we hear your word, that we would be those who have faith and trust in you and you alone. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, please do sit down. And uh, let me add my welcome to that of Ben's uh, earlier in the service. And uh, let me encourage you, if you will, to turn back in the uh, Bibles to uh, Isaiah chapter 36 uh, and 37. We're going to look at these two chapters. Page 719 uh, is the page number. I think you'll find it particularly helpful to have it open in front of you as we look at these uh, two chapters and as we draw to the end almost next week will be the end of uh, looking through chapters 28 to 39 um, uh, through uh, this term. Uh, Sometimes simply being told to trust the Lord doesn't seem enough. Uh, For those of you who are not yet retired, uh, imagine with me your mind drifting to the future in a time when you are retired with a a smaller income and failing health. And being told to trust the Lord to provide seems a bit pious and and unrealistic, doesn't it? And so the Christian will think, well, of course, I will trust the Lord, but I need to be sure that I have money in the bank and a good pension scheme and the mortgage paid off and my health insurance up to date. When I have all that, then I'll feel secure. But not just trusting the Lord, that's not enough. Look, I've got to be honest with you as a pastor, when I meet with people facing death, all that I have in those moments is to tell them to trust the Lord Jesus Christ and his death for them, that they 
will be forgiven and his resurrection to assure them a life beyond the grave. And I know there's nothing else to say, nothing else to tell them. But sometimes I find myself thinking, is that it? Is that all I've got to offer? Trust the Lord. There's other situations you can work them out. But uh, the point is that in many situations, being told simply to trust the Lord just doesn't seem to be enough. But all the way through this section, from chapters 28 to 35, that is what we've seen the Lord telling his people to do. You might have been thinking as I've been preaching week after week, he's telling me the same thing. That's exactly right. Through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord has said repeatedly the same thing to his people, trust me. He said, do not put your trust in anything else. He said to those people back then, trust me to deliver you from the threat that is the Assyrian invasion. And as we've considered several times in these last weeks, that threat was a very real and present danger for God's people. They feared for their lives. They feared defeat and destruction and death. Like people, Christian people today in Syria and Iraq and and the region targeted by ISIS to become an Islamic state, Christians in that situation have very good reason to fear. Well, so it was in Isaiah's day. Uh, These people that Isaiah was writing to were not a bunch of pessimists, they were realists. The future looked bleak, very bleak indeed. For the Assyrians had defeated all comers. They had swept through all the nations around them. And so the prophet Isaiah said, trust the Lord, don't trust yourselves to the Egyptians. Don't think that military might or diplomatic strategies will save you. And as he said, just trust the Lord, it just didn't seem realistic. Just as I guess many of us have been thinking in these last weeks, simply trust the Lord just doesn't seem practical. I've heard what you've been saying, Paul, but it doesn't seem realistic. And that's why chapters 36 and 37 are so important for us. After all these chapters telling us the same thing, here we see that trust the Lord is enough. When we're faced with the destroyer, when our greatest enemy, death, is on our doorstep, to trust the Lord is not a bad option, and it's not even just the the only option left to us, it is the best option. Now look with me, if you will, then, at chapter 36 and verse 1. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign... Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Sennacherib, the the king and leader of the Assyrians, has attacked Judah. Now, Sennacherib features big in the next two chapters. And because his name is a bit of a mouthful, and I reckon his name sounds a bit like a sugar substitute you put in hot drinks. You know, sugar in your coffee? No thanks, I'm on a diet, I'll have a couple of Sennacheribs. Now, because of that, I like to call him um, Lord Sugar. So from now on, I'll refer to Sennacherib as Lord Sugar. So verse one, Lord Sugar and the Assyrians made considerable considerable advances into the nation uh, of Judah, capturing all the fortified cities of Judah. And when your fortified cities have been taken, you know you're in trouble, because if they can take the fortified cities, they can take any city, any village. This was a terrifying moment for Judah. Barry Webb writes, miraculously, Jerusalem survived, but the whole Judean countryside was a smoking ruin. So yes, they had survived, but the capital city, Jerusalem, was the next target for the Assyrian invasion. And so, verse 2, then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. 
When the commander stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washman's field, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to him. Now, what if you spot the location there in verse 2? The aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. It's supposed to ring some bells for us. It probably won't because it's a long time since we studied the early chapters of Isaiah. It's nearly two years ago now. But if we read Isaiah in one sitting, we'd remember this location. The aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field is precisely the location where Hezekiah's predecessor, King Ahaz, met with Isaiah when he also was facing an invading army. This was back in chapter 7. And the message from the Lord to Ahaz, King Ahaz, in chapter 7, was simply this, trust the Lord. Do not be afraid of the army that is threatening to overrun you. Trust the Lord to deliver you. But King Ahaz did not trust the Lord, and it was a disaster for the nation. Now, here we are, years later, in the same place, in exactly the same situation, with the next king of Judah on the throne, Hezekiah, having exactly the same choice to make. And so as we read verse 2, we're meant to wonder what would King Hezekiah choose to do? Would he trust the Lord? Indeed, that is the very question that the Assyrians put to him. Look at verse 4. The field commander, that is the Assyrian commander, said to Hezekiah's officials, tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria says, on what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have strategy and military strength but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Now, uh, this is a most encouraging verse in many ways. It tells us that Hezekiah, the king of Judah, was defiantly standing against the Assyrians and their king, Lord Sugar. But the Assyrians think that Hezekiah is bonkers. On whom are you depending, they ask in verse five. Where are you putting your trust Indeed, the Assyrians think that Hezekiah is trusting the Egyptians, verse 6. Look now, you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces a man's hand and wounds him if he leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. I love that description, a splintered reed of a staff which pierces a man's hand and wounds him. It's a brilliant description of Egypt. And come to that of anything that that we trust in, anything that we lean on. He's saying here, lean on anything other than the Lord, and like a splintered staff, it harms you eventually. So the Assyrian commander's remark is uh, cutting, and there is some truth in it. But his rhetoric is biting too. Verse 7, he says, don't tell me you're relying on the Lord. That won't do you any good. He's cutting, he's biting, and then as you turn over and look at verse 8, you see he's sarcastic. Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses, if you can put riders on them. Let's do a bargain, shall we? Let's say we give you 2,000 horses, but it won't do you any good because you won't have enough men to train men to ride on them anyway. Ouch. And so, verse 9, the Assyrians' dismissive assist, assessment of the situation, you are so weak you couldn't even stand against one Assyrian officer. You're weak even with the Egyptians on your side. And besides, verse 10, have I come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. What a thing to say. Lord Sugar believes that the Lord Almighty is on his side. 
And what Lord Sugar says here has some truth in it. Assyria was the instrument of the Lord's wrath back in chapter 10. So do you see the commander's speech is persuasive precisely because it is sprinkled with some measure of truth. Its basic promise is false, namely that the Lord has abandoned Judah and therefore that to trust the Lord is futile. That is wrong. But still, as God's people listened to the commander's speech, there was enough in it that sounded good and right and could well have left them questioning whether trust the Lord really wasn't just a pious and ultimately futile suggestion. That is certainly how it seems to me sometimes. There are so many competing voices in this world and faced with death and destruction, there are other voices in this world telling me what I should do, how I should live. Don't trust the Lord. Don't pin your hopes on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can't trust that. No, have a blast while it lasts. Make the most of it while you're alive. Sometimes it's more subtle. Okay, trust the Lord, be a Christian, but don't put all your eggs into one basket, especially not a basket that's as flimsy as believing that trusting the Lord is all you need. No, you can trust the Lord, but make sure you make wise investments for the future as well. Do you see, as we listen to these other arguments, they are persuasive. They can be quite sophisticated. And they lure us away from trusting the Lord. That's what the Assyrian commander's speech was designed to do. And that's why Hezekiah's top officials were concerned. They wanted to stop Joe Public from hearing this propaganda. And so verse 11, then Eliakim, Shebna and Joah, remember they are Hezekiah's top men, the top men of Judah, uh, They said to the field commander, verse 11, please speak to your servants in Aramaic, since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of all the people on the wall. Ah, Now we learn something more, like flies on the wall. Many of the citizens of Jerusalem were sitting on the city wall, listening to the Assyrian commander making his aggressive speech. He was speaking in Hebrew. And so understandably, the top guys in Hezekiah's government didn't want to hear any more of the speech uh, in Hebrew, so they suggested that they continue their negotiations in Aramaic, just so the normal people couldn't hear it. But rather than oblige, that just stoked up the Assyrian commander even more. He could smell fear and weakness in the Hezekiah camp, and so he really ramped it up. Verse 12, but the commander replied, was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things and not to the men sitting on the wall who, like you, will have to eat their own filth and drink their own urine? Oh, my goodness me. Now the rhetoric has really been stepped up a gear. The commander says, oh, these, these people sitting on the wall, they need to know where this is heading. If you don't soon wave a white flag and surrender, these people know, need to know what they're in for and it won't be pleasant. There'll be such a siege on this city that by the end of it, the people inside will be eating their own excrement and drinking their own urine. And then he says, verse 13, the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says, don't let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you. Don't let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. It is a terrifying moment of aggression. Don't listen to your king. But it is also a terrific moment 
For do you see there in verse 15, King Hezekiah has been telling the people of Judah to put their trust in the Lord, simply now. King Hezekiah has been saying, verse 15, surely the Lord will deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. What a truly brilliant moment. After all these chapters, when the people of Judah have been looking to the Egyptians to save them, finally God's people are standing firm on the promise of God. (laughs) They're singing the song we've just sung. They are trusting themselves to the Lord to deliver them from death and destruction. But the enemy won't leave it there. Verse 16. Don't listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then every one of you will eat from his own vineyard and fig tree and drink water from his own cistern until I come and take you to a new land like your own, a land of corn and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Do you see what he's saying? He says there's a choice to make. Here's the choice. Refuse to budge. Oh yeah, you can carry on trusting the Lord. But if you refuse to surrender, you'll eat poo and drink wee. Life will be miserable for you. Or you can give up your ridiculous principle of trusting the Lord. And yes, you will be taken to Assyria, but there'll be figs to eat rather than poo. And you'll eat clean drinking water rather than wee. That's a much better option. Much better. And in verse 17, it's as if the Assyrian commander is offering the citizens of Jerusalem the promised land. A land like your own, a land of corn and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Well, again, it's the same for us. As we listen to the competing voices of the world, they offer us so much. By telling us that trusting the Lord, we're missing out on so much. That's the message I hear all the time. I hear it every time I watch the television ads. I hear it when I look at the way my friends live their lives and I don't even have other people to blame because I hear it when I'm alone with my own thoughts. I hear the Christian life is tough. Trusting Christ is difficult. I could have so much more if I gave in and followed any one of these other options. Life would be so much easier. See, I look at the life that others enjoy and they have more time, more disposable income, more freedom, more pleasures. They do seem to have the promised land. That's what the people of God are being promised here, being offered here anyway. So the Assyrian commander says, verse 18, do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says the Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the land of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Shevarathim? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries have been able to save his land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Here is the moment when you know that Lord Sugar has gone too far. From asking God's people to wave a white flag of surrender, here are the Assyrians doing the equivalent of holding up a red rag to a bull. Yes, Lord Sugar has conquered all comers, but the moment he thinks he's more powerful than the Lord God Almighty, he has gone too far. You cannot make that kind of proud and blasphemous remark without it coming back to bite you. And wonderfully, verse 21, the people remained silent and said nothing in reply because the king had commanded, do not answer him. It's another great moment. The people are listening to their king and that is brilliant because we already know their king is telling them to trust the Lord. 
And so in verse 22, Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah rip their clothes because they heard such blasphemy from the Assyrians and they report this whole conversation back to King Hezekiah. And when Hezekiah heard all this, his response is magnificent too. Chapter 37, verse 1, when King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord. He sent Eliakim, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and the leading priests, all wearing sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. Do you see, the first place Hezekiah turns to is the Lord. He went to the temple and he called on Isaiah, the prophet. He wants to hear the word of the Lord. It's precisely what we didn't see in all the chapters beforehand in the woes section. Here is heartfelt repentance, not heartless religion as we saw in chapter 29. Here is a genuine trust in the Lord, not trusting in the the Egyptians as we saw in chapter 31. And here is an eagerness to hear the word of the Lord, not a rejection of God's word as we saw in chapter 30 and indeed right through the section. So here, Hezekiah is a great example to us. Whenever we're tempted by the competing voices of the world, as we fear for our lives and feel vulnerable in this scary world, when the world turns up the volume and and sounds persuasive, we should do precisely what Hezekiah did here, turn to the Lord in humble repentance and listen to his word. So in verses three and four, Hezekiah's officials tell tell Isaiah the score and Isaiah responds, verse five, when King Hezekiah's officials came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, tell your master, this is what the Lord says, do not be afraid of what you've heard, those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria blasphemed me. Listen, I'm going to put a spirit in him so that when he hears a certain report, he will return to his own country and there I'll have him cut down with the sword. There's the promise. The Lord has heard the blasphemy and the Lord God Almighty is going to deal with Lord Sugar, first by getting him to withdraw from Jerusalem and then by cutting him down. The Lord delivered on the first part of that promise in verses 9 to 13. The field commander and Lord Sugar go off to fight elsewhere. And while they were doing that, Lord Sugar sends a threatening letter to Hezekiah. And so we read verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread, out, spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord God Almighty, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You've made heaven and earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. It is true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these people and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them. For they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, O Lord our God, deliver us from his hand so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Once again, it's a magnificent response from Hezekiah. Uh, Again, the first thing he does is turn to the Lord, laying Lord Sugar's letters out before the Lord God and praying about it. And his prayer is so good because his prayer firstly focuses on the character of God. Look at verse 16. O Lord God Almighty, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth you have made heaven and earth it's a great way to begin our prayers to remember who we are praying to 
It's how Jesus taught us to pray. He, do you remember when, when the disciples said, teach us how to pray? He said, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven. Two great truths in the first line of the Lord's Prayer. God is your Father. He cares for you. And he's in heaven. He's seated on the throne. He is king of the universe. Now, if you have those dual truths in your mind when you pray, it will spur you on in your prayers. Our Father, he cares for you, so he'll hear your prayer. And he's in heaven, he's all-powerful, so he can do something about whatever you pray about. Hezekiah knew that. He knew that the God is the all-powerful God over all other gods, the creator of all things. The other great thing about Hezekiah's prayer is that it is most concerned about the honour and glory of God. Do you see that, verse 17? Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. Same thing at the end, verse 20. Now, O Lord our God, deliver us from his hand so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Hezekiah prayed for the honour and glory of the Lord. He effectively prayed the second line of the Lord's prayer. Hallowed be your name. So it's a great prayer. And in response to Hezekiah's prayer, verse 21, Isaiah, son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Because you've prayed to me concerning Zennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word the Lord has spoken to him. And then in verses 22 to 29, the Lord Almighty promises to destroy the destroyer, Lord Sugar, And then in verses 30 to 35, he promises deliverance for Hezekiah. Look with me at how this section ends at verse 35. These are the words of the Lord to Hezekiah. Verse 35, I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. And then he does just that. Verse 36, then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. 185,000 fighting men died overnight. That is about twice the size of the entire British army today, dead overnight. The point is, there is no question the Lord God defeated the Assyrian army. There was no battle. The Lord just killed them. And then Lord Sugar was cut down. Verse 37. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day, while he was worshipping in the temple of his god Nisroch, his sons Adramalak and Shazerah cut him down with the sword. And they escaped to the land of Ararat. And Esharadon, his son, succeeded him as king. This is the moment when, if I may put it this way, God said to Lord Sugar, you're fired. (laughs) Yeah, well, you got there eventually. (laughs) And I love these words of Barry Webb. The towering tyrant is dispatched in just three verses. See, here's two chapters, two chapters of dialogue. And in three verses, he's gone. And don't miss the detail of how he goes and where it all happened. Lord Sugar was killed in the temple in his own city by his own sons. In the temple, demonstrating that the Lord God Almighty is more powerful than all other gods. And in the temple, in in the capital city, where he would feel most secure, surrounded by his own sons and family. 
just goes to show us that there is nowhere that the Lord God is not God. It was a mighty act of God and it shows us just how powerful the one true living God really is. And most of all, it shows us just how sensible it is to trust the Lord. That was all that Hezekiah did. All he did was put his trust in the Lord. He prayed and turned to the word of the Lord and trusted him. And all he did was told God's people to trust the Lord. He didn't do anything else. And Jerusalem was miraculously delivered from the Assyrians. They were to save from destruction and death. And so do you see in these two chapters, after all the other chapters we've read over these weeks, in these two chapters we see that it is enough to trust the Lord. He really is God over all the kingdoms of the earth. We really can trust him to keep his promises. And when we're faced with death and destruction and living in a scary world of uncertainty, putting our trust in the Lord is the best option. It is sensible to trust the one who died for us, the one who rose again from the dead, the one who will come back in power and glory to judge the living and the dead and to usher in his new kingdom forever. And so in just a moment, as we take bread and wine, and as we see at the cross, Jesus' commitment to us, we should know that it really is enough to trust him with our whole lives, in every situation, all the time. Well, let's turn to pray. And I'll leave a moment of silence for us to make our own response. Maybe thanking God for who he is and how powerful he is. Maybe asking him to help us to do this very thing, to trust him in our own situations. And then after a moment of silence, Ben will uh, lead us in our prayers of intercession.